Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car... Use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. So I came across one of the wildest stats of the entire season. Uh, right before we started hitting record on this episode. This is from Josh Dubow uh, at the AP, which is uh, after Tommy DeVito got confirmed as the starter for the Giants this week. There are now 10 rookie starting quarterbacks across the NFL in week 10. That sets the record in a non-replacement season for a number of rookie starting quarterbacks in one week. That is a third of the NFL starting a rookie EJ I I mean obviously we've never seen that before I don't know if we're ever going to see that again like that is an absolutely insane number the top half of that is good <laughs> meaning the rookies that we wanted to see are getting their reps which they need to get we've talked about that at length if you're going to get over the hump as a rookie you need you need reps you need to be able to see defenses in real speed the bottom Half-ish of that equation, maybe 40%, is not what we want to see. It means that quality starters, for the most part, have been injured, and you know now we're down to the rookies who were not expected to play significant reps in their rookie year, and they're going to be starting sometimes, uh, as we saw last week with Clayton Toon, against very good defenses in their first professional start. And that doesn't make for the best football, but... You know, history is history. We're going to see 10. That's the most ever. I'm with you. I kind of actually hope we don't see quite that many again. I'm all for rooks getting their reps, but this is a little excessive. Uh, One of them is going to be starting on Sunday night, by the way. And uh, full disclosure, we're not touching on the Raiders-Jets game in this preview episode. Uh, But we do love Aiden O'Connell on this podcast. I know a lot of people have been bemoaning Uh, the primetime offerings of this week. Uh, By the time this comes out, the Panthers and Bears game will have already happened Um, because we're recording this on Wednesday. I think it comes out on Friday. Uh, But it's going to be Jets, Raiders on Sunday night, and then Bills, Broncos on Monday night. A lot of people are very upset with that. Just watch Aiden O'Connell, okay? Like, highly entertaining young quarterback. I know he wasn't taken in the first round, but he's, he's a fun guy to watch. And uh, also, while you're doing it, by the way, uh, this week's underdog promo, which we think, rather, we hope to God, has a <laughs> better chance of hitting than George Pickens at half a yard. Uh, oh, it's going to be man. Garrett Wilson at half a yard on Sunday Night Football. So if you're filling out your underdog entries uh, for Sunday night, uh, you will get a hopefully 
manageable Garrett Wilson at half a receiving yard. I guess it depends on how much you believe in the Jets offense. Um, I didn't think it was possible for the under <laughs> to to be successful on those, but apparently it is. So uh, I didn't think it was possible if you went over. Like I thought, <laughs> we're good. That's the thing. We were clear, and then he lost four yards. <laughs> yeah. So I believe that being said, I believe in Garrett Wilson a little bit more than I believe in George Pickens just overall. So, hey, here's a square that is we'll just call it we'll call it free. We'll call it likely to be earned. Yes. Yes. Uh, So, again, fill out the rest of your entries than anything that sounds good to you, knowing full well that Garrett Wilson has at least a 50 percent chance of getting a yard, which might be better (laughs) odds than than the Steelers. Um, Um, All right. We have a lot of games to talk about today. We're going to get right into it talk about game number one on the docket 49ers Jaguars which personally for me even going into this year I expected this to be a primetime game because everybody thought the Jags are going to be the best team in the AFC South they probably are Uh, everybody thought the 49ers were going to be a top team in the NFC they might be (laughs) we'll see Uh, you know started out that way had a little bit of a skid but still like going into this year this was one of the matchups that I was really, really looking forward to. And uh, even with the the midseason skid that we just saw in San Francisco, I still think it's one of the better games this weekend. I believe they're going to be there at the end. And this is we're going to go full circle on the podcast today. We're going to we're going to start talking about the 49ers. And uh, my parting glass as a little foreshadowing is also about the 49ers. So we're, we're going to have that full circle moment on the podcast today. But in that dominant stretch, weeks one to five, San Francisco was tied for fourth in the league with 34 explosive pass plays. Since then, in the last three losses, they've dropped to 16th dead pack, completely mid average. So Defenses, for better or worse, have solved a little bit of San Francisco's offense. Part of that is Debo being out. He was certainly a big part of those explosive plays in the passing game. You know, like I said at the top, San Francisco is likely going to be there at the end. I still believe in this team. I still believe in this offense. But the shine is off a little bit now, both of the offense and the defense. People aren't quite so scared. It was a juggernaut. At, at week five of this this year, they'd rolled off like 14 straight, not including their loss in the playoffs, like 14 straight regular season games. Like they were absolutely, they were the definition of rolling. Since then, I uh, got a little bit of a flat tire, had to pull over. I think they're going to get it changed and, and get themselves into the playoffs, but we'll see. The big thing is I I think we've we've come to understand how important Trent Williams is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> kind of, I mean, we knew, we know that Trent's important, right? But I think people had uh, a lot more faith in the rest of the offensive line than maybe they should have. And even going back to, you know, September when I was talking about the possibility of this exact skid, when I highlighted this exact stretch of games, and I was like, I don't know, they might go one and four. If they lose this game, they're going to go one and four in that stretch. And one of the reasons I pointed out was like, I'm not a huge fan of this offensive line uh, outside of Trent. And they haven't been good outside of Trent in terms of pass protection. If you look at the last three opponents uh, that they played against, the Browns had a 61% uh, pass rush win rate. Was the, it was the sixth best across the league that week. Vikings uh, had a 54 and a half pass rush win rate. That was third best across the NFL that week when they played against the 49ers. 
And then the last game the 49ers played, the Bengals had a 48.8% pass rush win rate. That was 12th best across the league. So over the last month, you know, where Trent's been dealing with injury, or rather the last few games where Trent's been dealing with injury, they have really, really struggled. And even in the game, the last game that Trent played, which he was playing hurt, he himself gave up five pressures in that game. And he he was... I don't want to call him a liability, but he wasn't his normal self in the last time that we saw him on the field. Again, because he was playing hurt. Um, but if you look at all the non-Trent uh, offensive linemen here, uh, you know, Burford's given up 22 pressures this year and two sacks. McTivitz has given up 19 pressures and five sacks. Brendel as a center, like centers never give up this many pressures. He's given up 19, uh, sorry, not 19, 16, a little bit of a flip that one in my brain still um, <laughs> but still 16 pressures as a center in eight games is not normal like centers don't normally give up that many because they don't they don't really see that many opportunities to give up like unless they pressure. play dexter lawrence like twice <laughs> or or if they play uh the vikings that are going to blitz him and, and make him pass pro one-on-one over and over again and, and he's and he's struggled at it you know um and then banks who's their most quote-unquote consistent pass protector not named Trent like he still gave up 15 pressures in his own right so he's not been great and when you have a quarter quarterback like Brock Purdy who is I don't what word would I use for it he's not mobile but he's he's got escapability you know like he's mm-hmm. quick in the pocket he's got great short area quickness like he can avoid the first guy and kind of get out of trouble and, and make some throws on the run like he's got some of that to him but I wouldn't consider him to be, you know, a Josh Allen, a Lamar, uh, you know, that kind of playmaking mobility where, or, or Burrow, I would even say Burrow, where it's like you can have an absolutely trash offensive line in front of him and he's going to make it work. Um, Purdy is not that type of quarterback. And so I think we're starting to see defenses just completely tee off on them because they know they can't pass protect. And if you just protect the middle of the field, like we saw Cleveland do with like a bunch of man coverage with zone help over the middle, they didn't really have an answer for it. So I have to assume Jacksonville is going to try the same thing again this week. But, uh, you know, unfortunately for Jacksonville, it's kind of stoppable force meets movable object here. Their pass rush isn't nearly as good as all the other pass rushes that San Francisco has played against recently. On the top layer, it looks like this defense doesn't get home hardly at all, Uh, but they're really close. They're literally one step away. So they've only generated 19 sacks, and that's why people look at their numbers and go, dude, that's 30th in the league. Like Anybody that's just looking at sacks would think the Jaguars have a terrible pass rush. But if you add in just QB hits, so this isn't all of hurries and everything else. This is just hits or sacks, and remember... The way the rules being called this year, you have to be within one step, literally one step of the quarterback letting go of the ball or you're getting a flag. They jump up to 55 total. That's 19th in the league. So they go from 30th to 19th. They will hit your quarterback, but they're this close to getting a lot of other sacks. So again, San Francisco's pass protection, it has been, it wasn't even great. You, you mentioned that before Trent left. He We saw him get, flags even before he left with the injury which was very uncharacteristic then of course he had the last game where he's playing with injury and he gave up pressures and we're like wait a minute Trent Williams is giving up pressures like on what earth the pass pro has been suspect 
The Jags defense has been close, not great, but close. And you're going to talk about where that comes from. But I think we could see continued pressure, which is going to upset the offense. And maybe you will get your one and four stretch because if that occurs, if the Jaguars defense does get home against this suspect San Francisco offensive line, they're not going to be able to generate the kind of offense that they were through the first five weeks. This Jags pass rush is really interesting because you can see that it's in them. Like you can see that they (laughs) theoretically have the tools to be a competent pass rush. Like there's no reason why the Texans with Jonathan Grenard and a rookie Will Anderson should be this much better at rushing the pass rush or rushing the rushing the quarterback than, than Jacksonville you know, who invested first overall on Trayvon Walker and you got Josh Allen and, you know, you got uh, Roy Robertson Harris and, and like a Kuhn's a good blitzer. Like it, it, the math ain't math in terms of why they, like, why they can't get home, especially when they're ninth in terms of sending six plus bodies, like in, in terms of like true six plus man um, rush situations, they have the ninth most in the NFL. So it's like, okay, we're giving all these one-on-ones to Josh Allen. We're giving all these one-on-ones to Trayvon Walker, who hasn't quite, not even quite, just straight up hasn't lived up to his draft <laughs> stock yet. It's like, what's what's going on here? And I was watching some film on those six-plus man pass rush reps. They run into each other a lot. Like, they disrupt their own rush paths a lot. And... You know, this is kind of a, a, from a philosophical standpoint, why some coaches aren't super blitz heavy is because they want to give their their actual defensive linemen room to work and, you know, room to run like an ET stunt without running into some DB that's coming off the edge and disrupting their path or running into a linebacker that's trying to run off their hip or something like that. But they, they kind of want to work back and, you know, counter back inside themselves, but they can't because there's a linebacker there. Like some defensive coordinators beyond just a coverage perspective want to give their three technique a true two way go. And you can't really do that if you're blitzing up the a gap every single time, you know, if you have the guy to do it, they want to do that. And, you know, when I'm watching the Jags rush with six bodies, they clog up, they clog up their own rush lanes and almost and almost make it harder on themselves sometimes. And there there are some defenses that are really good at sending five and six and not disrupting each other. Like Baltimore. Baltimore sends five and six guys all the time. You know, Minnesota sends it like 50% of the time. And they're a lot better at it in terms of maintaining rush lanes and not screwing each other up. But Jacksonville, for whatever reason, they get in each other's way and they block each other accidentally because of, you know, maybe the first guy doesn't get enough penetration and so it creates a traffic jam or maybe like they make mistakes in terms of like whose hip they're supposed to run off of. So you get two linebackers running into the same gap and basically blocking themselves like it's it's just kind of a series of unfortunate events when they do blitz. And I kind of want to see them stop doing it because it just it hurts them honestly like it, it really does hurt them when they blitz sometimes unless they just get better at it and who knows maybe they will um but i kind of want to see them just do the whole like rush four thing play coverage give josh allen time to to work his way there eventually give trayvon walker time to collapse the pocket because if there's one thing he can do it's at least collapse the pocket um it's just kind of a little stylistic thing where they try to blitz a lot but they're not very good at it and it just makes things worse 
it's one of the skills we talk about when we're talking about largely draftable prospects, but also free agents. And are they a good game slash stunt player, right? And does that, that doesn't mean they're always the one getting home. In fact, a lot of times it's not the one getting home. The guy slamming into the tackle from the inside, from the defensive interior, has to do that in a certain way. And the guy running off his back has to, it, it's just like a running back reading offensive line blocks, right? Mm-hmm. You have to know where that guy's going to go, how, how much depth they're going to get, and you have to go as tightly around them as you can with as much speed as you can to be effective. And it kind of reminds me of the Tush Push video you put out, right? They're, everybody's lining up and doing it. Not everybody's having the same results because they don't have the same technique. And right now the Jags blitz technique, especially along the defensive line, is not there. And I wonder with the success of teams you mentioned like Baltimore and Seattle who hired guys like BT Jordan uh, and Chuck, like pass rush specialists are going to start being worth their weight in gold. Because again, right now, even with all that chaos that we mentioned, you're one step away from a whole lot more sacks, right? Mm-hmm. If you could hire one guy to come in and hone off the rough edges and turn that 19 number into, say, 40, it's easily worth it in the number of drives you stop. So, I mean, Chuck Smith's getting the most out of Jadavian Clowney and Kyle Van Noy coming off the couch. <laughs> like, Again, those guys are worth whatever they're being paid. They really are. Absolutely. Um, in terms of the uh, Jaguars' offense, now going against the, the 49ers' defense, you know the other side of the ball here, kind of another uh, another matchup of stoppable force meets movable object. All the numbers for this game point to it being kind of like a little bit of a slop fest, but not like an unentertaining slop fest, more of just a, a two teams constantly missing opportunities and whoever misses the least amount of opportunities wins. Because you look at the Jaguars' receiving core, they are 30th in contested catch percentage across every receiving core in the NFL. And it's not like Trevor's throwing them bad balls, you know? Like, Trevor's actually been dealing this year on a lot of, you know, passes 15, 20-plus yards down the field. But their contested catch percentage is just really, really atrocious. Uh, however, they happen to be running into a defense that's not going to contest them so like again stoppable force meets movable object there's some fun lock and key relationships on both sides of this particular matchup jags offense and 49ers defense start with the jags offense in teams know that travis Etienne is their spark plug and we said that earlier i i remember saying that about a month ago on this podcast that like as travis Etienne goes Really kind of so goes the Jaguars offense. Yes, Trevor needs to play well, but they need to get ETN going. Teams know this. We're not the only ones that saw that. They've faced the ninth most stacked boxes. That's eight or more defenders in the box in the league on running plays. Coincidentally, when you flip it back to the 49ers offense, people know the same thing about CMC. (laughs) They've faced the second most in the league. So teams understand that if you stop those guys, you've got a much better chance to stop the offense. On the 49ers defense side, you talked about the Jaguars' contested catch rate being really low. Well, there's hope for them this week, at least on the catching it part, because the contested target percentage is 13.3% for San Francisco. That's 27th in the league. Put that in perspective, it's right above Chicago, which is a really nasty pass defense. So that part of their pass defense, they basically don't contest. They don't gamble. 
And I have a feeling this is a coaching point in their secondary that they're like, uh, uh-uh, we don't want you leaning in front of a guy and missing a tackle. It's okay if he catches it, but then, and the, but then the other shoe dropping is yards after the catch per completion allowed is fourth best in the league. So if you are an offense that is based on yak and you are counting on, we'll get it to our guys and then they'll run and we'll pick up 30, 50% of our offense from that. You're in big trouble against the 49ers because you're not going to do that. Your guys are going to catch the ball and they're going to go basically nowhere. They're going to they're going to get the fourth least amount of yards after the catch in the league, basically. So we can probably see Jaguars catching a bunch of balls because not that many will be contested by number, but they're not going to go anywhere after that. It's such an interesting game because it's an offense that can't pass protect versus a defense that struggles to, to pass rush and then an offense that struggles to win contested balls down the field against a defense that's absolutely going to let them catch those, but you're not going to get anything else after that. Yeah, I, I honestly don't know who's going to win this one. Uh, again, it, it the numbers say it's going to be kind of sloppy. Um, and I, I do not mean that in the sense of like an unwatchable like Giants Jets sloppy like it's going to it's <laughs> going to be a highly entertaining game. But if either Jags fans or 49ers fans are thinking that they're going to enjoy watching this game, they have another thing coming. Mm. This one's going to make them tear their hair out like both teams. Nobody's going to have fun. At least neutral parties will have fun. Actual fan bases watching this game will not have fun. It's going to be uh, it's going to be gross in all the best ways. But I really can't wait. Like if I <laughs> if I had to pick who's going to win, like absolutely had to pick. I would say Jacksonville, but I don't feel great about it, you know? Yeah, you'll you'll watch it and you'll like it. <laughs> That's what it feels like <laughs> the tagline for this game should be for both fan bases. It, I could see both teams winning this one. They both have enough talent to do it. Neither has been certainly hitting on all cylinders. San Francisco, less cylinders even than the Jags of late. They really have... Found a bit of a slide both on offense and defense. It's not like one side of the ball's letting that team down. So probably comes down to bigger plays, but these individual matchups that we've highlighted are the reasons that we want to watch it. This is a pure popcorn game. Lots of talent. Might not be the cleanest execution. End result, still probably going to be some fun football. I just think it's interesting because we're talking about these two teams like like they're bottom barrel teams, but they're also two of the only franchises that have had five game win streaks this year. So it's like, yeah, they're great. They're great, but they could be so much better. And I think that's kind of what's <laughs> frustrating about it is like, we know they could be really, really, really good. And neither team has really hit that point yet. So uh, still long season to go. They both, uh, I think have yet to hit their peak. We'll see if this game can be the start of that ascension. Uh, game two on the docket, Lions-Chargers. Talk about not hitting your peak. Uh, <laughs> God, I don't know entirely what to make of the Chargers because every single game is just up, down, up, down, up, down. We know there are some things they do really well. They rush the passer really well. Justin Herbert is playing really well. And the things that they can hang their hat on, like they are among the best teams in the NFL at those specific things. You get outside of that wheelhouse. It's a little bit of a roller coaster ride. And uh, if there's one team that that you really don't want to be 
inconsistent against, it's the Lions because they're one of the most consistent teams in the league. And they're one of those teams where you give them an inch, they will absolutely take a mile. Chargers are going to have to play perfect in this one. And I don't think they've played a perfect game yet this year. Even against the Jets, that was a far from perfect game. It's uh, it's one of their tougher matchups that they're going to face the entire year. We'll start with the Chargers offense because you mentioned that sort of roller coaster and that you don't know what to make of this team. I think I know what to make of this team, and it'll be the the summary point here. Look, the Jets defense wrecks everybody trying to say, oh, they didn't have a good day against the defense of the Jets. Well, nobody has a good day against that defense, but the Chargers offense, regardless of Jets or not, just doesn't have an identity right now. Eckler's rushing averages in the last four games, 1.9, 3.2, 1.9, Now, in all fairness, he did face the top two rushing defenses in the league in that four-game stretch. (laughs) They were the (laughs) 1.9s. Hint, hint. Sacks allowed in the last four (laughs) games, 11. Points versus the Cowboys and the Chiefs, 17 and 17. Points versus the Bears and the Jets, 30 and 27. The Chargers play pretty well against bad teams. And you go, sweet, that's what they can do. And not very well against good teams. And unfortunately for them, for the Chargers, the Lions are a pretty darn good team. And they get them this week. And I would expect a result much closer to the Cowboys and Chiefs outcome than I would to the Bears and Jets outcome. And I know some people are going to take issue with us still believing in the Lions after what the Ravens did to them. The Ravens do that to everybody. Well, <laughs> Ravens just did Mitchell. it to the Sea. Well, they just did it to the Seahawks too. And again, yeah. we said measuring stick. And yeah, it is. You come out of that game going, okay, these are two good teams. One of these teams is way better. It doesn't mean the Seahawks are terrible. There's been a lot of that um, hue and cry from the fan base locally over the last week. Talk radio has been like, oh. Sky's falling. It's like, no, the Seahawks are still a really good team. The Ravens, we'll talk about them in a bit. They're an amazing team. We'll talk about why. But um, this Chargers-Lions tilt is going to be difficult. Like you said, Chargers are going to have to play one of their very best games. Those aren't typically the games we've seen them play for the most part. So, you know, we'll talk about the Lions a little bit because, you know, they deserve it. They're... uh, They're looking at a really good stretch here. Well, in terms of uh, winnable games, you know, the Lions uh, have an upcoming schedule where you got, um, you know, obviously the Chargers this week, and then you got the Bears, the Packers, the Saints, the Bears again, then the Broncos. All very, very winnable games. Like, they don't have to Mm -hmm. face anybody as good as Baltimore again, you know? So, like, they could very easily put their, their hat... Uh, back in the ring for for the first seed, obviously have to take care of business against a a very very um, capable Chargers pass rush. Uh, you know, with Thule and Bosa and a resurgent Khalil Mack, that's kind of that's kind of going to be their one um, their one major obstacle in this game. Is is how do you handle all three of them when they're on the field together? And honestly, I would I would say. On the other side, too, like how does Trey Pipkins handle Aiden Hutchinson? Because Trey Pipkins given up 27 pressures and like seven sacks this year going up against one of the best pass rushers in the league. Honestly, it might just come down on both sides to can they keep their quarterback upright? And I truly don't think I have faith in either team 
to do that. So again, this this could be another game that's a little bit frustrating to watch if you're a Lions fan and a Chargers fan. Um, probably not as many points scored in it as you expect, but whoever blocks both these pass rushes better is probably going to win. You're going to need some blocking if you're the Lions because finally, finally, Los Angeles has figured it out that NASCAR packages for the win. Uh, this comes from Daniel Popper, the athletic writer covering the Chargers. When Tui Pelotu, Mack, and Bosa have been on the field, they've been on the, the field all together, all three of them, for 40 dropbacks this season. They have 10 sacks on those plays. That's a 25% sack rate. The league average is 6.8%. <laughs> so when you put those three guys on the field, it's it, your sack rate goes up four times from the league average. Those guys are all tearing it up. And we talked about at the top, are you good games player? Can you support the other guy? And Bosa is an excellent game player. So is Mac. He's incredible. Both those guys are incredibly strong on the outside. And when they go inside and slam into a guard, they're going to shut them off or move them. And there's going to be an opening that you can slide off. And all three of these guys have the speed and the moves to pay that off. And they have been. And that is, they've cranked that up in the last three weeks. In the beginning of the season, they were not playing them together for the most part. Most of those snaps have come over the last four to five weeks. So they're really of late going, wait a minute, here's the secret sauce. We have our very own Richard Dent rule of three. It just happens to be three edges. It usually isn't. Usually there's a defensive tackle in there. But this is the magic elixir, and it's working right now. We're wrecking offenses when these three guys are on the field together. And they do put Thule inside like I, you know you mentioned uh, you need an inside guy well Thule kind of is like he's like the Justin Tuck you know comp mm-hmm. yep I would say mm-hmm. in terms of the defensive end that they'll kick inside now he stands up on a lot of those reps inside um, like as a stand-up rusher over a guard and from there he can either rush against the guard or he can loop around to the other side or he can be the one that, that <laughs> slams into the tackle to set up a loop behind him like he's kind of the guy that sets things up for the other guys. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and obviously, you know, Bosa and Mac feasted as well, coming off the edges. Um, but really, it's just kind of the way they deploy Thule as that wrecking ball that that kind of like secretly, you know, makes everything go there. Uh, God, I wish Chicago took him, but Don't. it's neither here nor there, EJ. No, that, it, <laughs> no it's definitely here. <laughs> <laughs> it is so here. It's right here. Uh, one of my favorites and one of the reasons I liked him so much at USC is his play strength and his willingness and I'll say football IQ to do the dirty work. He didn't always have to be the guy in the spotlight getting the sack, right? He was more than happy to go wreck somebody and just completely pry an alley open and leave one of his teammates to get a you know completely uncontested shot at the quarterback. That made him just as happy. You could see it on film. And he had the ability to do it. So when we talk about, you know, are they a good game player? Do they have play strength? Do they understand from a defensive standpoint, like, what's my role in this play? What do I need to accomplish to to make the defense better? Thule had, you know, bright green check marks in all those columns for me. And yeah, he was still there late in the draft. Just Ryan Poles things, EJ. I know. <laughs> That's all. I know. There, there are many Ryan uh, Poles things. It's okay. They gave up uh, a second round pick for Montez Sweat instead of spending a second round pick on Thule on a rookie deal. So, you know, all evened out in the end. Sorry, I just want to fucking. I know. I know. Just twist the knife. 
There's already a um, huge hole. You're going to have to work hard to find extra meat around that thing because the knife's already all the way through. Now, I, you know, I, I like the sweat deal, but Thule's been fantastic for the Chargers. I'm extremely happy for their fans. They started, you know, some of the podcasters we know for the Chargers started to get on board. And even at the end of training camp, we're like, hey, you know, we see what you saw in this guy. And then as soon as the season took off and he just produced, he's produced like a rocket. He's you know, he's a dark horse, but he should be in the defensive rookie of the year conversation. He's not going to win it, but he should be on the slate. Like he's played that well. Who do you think does win it? That's a really good it, question. Like it's, it's kind of a tough, a tough. It, yeah. Uh, it's a little different than question. offensive, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, well, CJ locked up offensive rookie of the yeah. year last week with like he could spike the ball every single snap for the rest of the year and still win <laughs> offensive rookie of the year. <laughs> oh, CJ Stroud's QBR goes to zero after week nine, still wins rookie of the year. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. Defensive rookie of the year, it's actually a, I guess it would be Jalen Carter and Witherspoon are the top two. It's got to be split. Yeah. I mean, Carter's got to get. Back on the field, he's been dealing with some health issues. If he doesn't, I'd say that opens the door for Spoon. Um, if Carter comes back and people haven't quite figured out how to deal with him, and I'm not sure you can. He's just super big and fast and really good. Um, if he keeps putting up numbers like he did, it'll be it'll be hard to catch him. If he misses a bunch of time due to injury and Spoon stays out there and keeps doing all the Spoon things, because, again, he's not being um, – like hyper effective in like one area he's contributing everywhere against the run against the pass blitzing you name it so he could he could absolutely win it if Jalen Carter misses too much time with injury or comes back slowly from that injury either way uh yeah the back is finicky like Jalen played last week but you could tell it was really affecting him and you know media keeps asking Sirianni like what's up and and they keep saying like oh, we're gonna take it day by day week by week we'll limit his snaps if we need to so it's it's definitely affecting him even if even if he's on the field um anyway tangent over <laughs> in terms of the coverage behind Thule and uh you know all the guys that are playing the back end for the Chargers uh it's kind of an interesting uh an interesting secondary and I almost kind of equate the situation similarly to you know, Jalen Carter and the Eagles in the sense that the pass rush is really good and the coverage on the back end, they play like this bend but don't break style. I think they're better at it, honestly, than the Eagles. I think they can cover better than the Eagles. Like, they're, it's not a, an elite coverage secondary, um, but, you know, they're 10th best in terms of touchdowns given up. They've only given up eight touchdowns among all their DBs the entire year, which is really good. They're 12th enforced incompletion rate at 12.6%, which is solid. You know they're fifth uh, in in highest number of uh, or highest yardage total allowed, uh, and fourth most explosive pass plays given up. But their red zone defense is better. Their overall you know uh, big plays, I guess you could call it, in the secondary is better than the Eagles. Like they kind of play the same style of like we're gonna put a tent over the top of everything and rush the passer and and make you kind of win with yak and. The Eagles try to do that, and when their pass rush gets home, it works really well, and when their pass rush doesn't get home, it works horribly, and the Chargers are a little bit better in the sense that when they don't get home, their coverage unit is better, but I, I would say overall stylistically, like it's a, it's a similar kind of thing here. Um, the thing 
that's interesting about the matchup with the Lions, though, in terms of them playing that style of defense, is the Lions are more than willing to lean into that because they don't really go deep anyway. Like, it's the lowest uh, target percentage of 20-plus yards in the entire NFL. It's like 8% or something like that. You know, they win with yards after the catch. They're fourth in yak. They're, uh, you know, super high in terms of missed tackles forced. Uh, you know, yards per route run, they're really high, even if their average depth of target's really low. Like, it's very much a a quick game, yak-oriented offense, which tells me that Jared Goff could complete a lot of passes in this game. Hint, hint, if you're filling out underdog entries and you're looking at <laughs> golf completions, probably probably go higher on that one because they're going to give him whatever completions he wants in this game, and they're going to give all these Lions receivers whatever yards after catch they want in this game. And then it's just going to come down to, um, you know, can the Lions punch it in the red zone? The Chargers' red zone defense is okay. It's like directly in the middle of the league at 16th. It really comes down to do you believe that once the Lions get inside the 20s, which they will a lot, can the Chargers bow up? And I say this as somebody who watches every single Chargers game because I work for the team. I'm not sure that philosophy is going to work for them in this game because Dave Montgomery's coming back. Uh, Amon Ra is an absolute beast in the red zone. Jared Goff is nails. The offensive line is good. Unless the Chargers pass rush just absolutely goes nuts. I don't think the bend but don't break thing is is a good way for them to go in this one. I think they're going to try it, and I don't think it's going to work. We'll see if it holds up, and actually we're going to spend the whole game seeing if a similar style holds up because the Lions, although stylistically and how they get there, aren't that much different in terms of what happens. For a really good D, they get a surprisingly low number of explosive plays versus the run. That's tackles for loss and tackles for no gain. They're 34th over, or they have 34 of those plays. That's 31st in the league overall. Kind of surprising for as much emphasis as we've talked about putting explosive plays in the early downs and getting offenses behind the chains. Lions really don't do it. However, they're really disciplined as a rush unit. They have a lot of pressures. Aiden Hutchinson has been among the leaders in the league the entire year. They rush the passer well. They're ninth in total pressures generated. And that, in turn, makes them a very good scoring defense. They just don't sort of risk the biscuit coming forward against the run. In terms of scoring drives allowed as a percentage, it's 32.6. That's 28 drives out of 86. That's good for ninth best in the league. So, again... They're going to give you some things. They're definitely going to give you some early down runs in terms of success. They're going to play the pass really hard, especially with the rush. And when they get to the red zone, just not that many people crack them. I will say in terms of of that particular matchup, Lions defense against Chargers offense. Um, again, I do think the Lions are going to score, score points in this one. Um, Chargers have to beat press coverage. They're going to get a lot of press coverage looks in this one uh, because the Lions play so much quarters, but they play kind of an aggressive style of quarters where if the receiver splits are anywhere at the numbers are wider, it's press on the outside. Like they don't, they like the the Chargers play a lot of quarters too, but again, it's off. Like all the guys are off other than, uh, you know, when Michael Davis is like isolated backside again against a, a split that's outside the numbers, they'll let him press because he's really good at it, but Generally speaking, every other DB is playing off. 
And the Lions are a little bit different in the sense that if you give them a look where they can play press coverage, whether it's quarters, whether it's cover one, whether it's in cover two, and they're going to jam the shit out of you and then sink back, like they're going to play press. They're eighth in press coverage snaps across all coverages. So it's going to come down to can the Chargers receivers line up against a physical secondary that's going to challenge them and win? We know Keenan can do it. Quentin Johnston's got to do it. Like, he struggled at doing it against Chicago. Like, they gave him a couple, a couple, you know, balls underneath where he could do all the yards after catch stuff, which he's really good at. But if you look at the cut-up of him against, like, Jalen Johnson on the outside, Jalen stayed over the top and was just like, nope, you're not getting anything. And he had to snap off a bunch of curls and everything like that. And it didn't look super clean. Like, he's got to win on these releases against press coverage. Or Detroit's going to do the same thing that Chicago did. And it's going to be, you know, frustrating, honestly, for the Chargers to to get explosive <laughs> plays if they have to do it entirely with Austin Eckler, like, dragging dudes in space or, like, Keenan going, going out there and having to do everything by himself on, like, third and nine. Like, they have to figure out a way to get Quentin Johnston to win these one-on-ones because they're going to give him these one-on-ones until he makes them pay for it. And Eckler's going to have a tough day. The Lions linebackers are really good. Alex Anzalone has been a complete revelation this year. He's been getting better every year. This year, he's hit a whole different level. He is playing middle linebacker as well as almost anybody in the league. He's certainly in the top 10. And Jack Campbell is a rookie, is also very good and very disciplined. They're, they're not going to give them a lot of free passes in terms of Eckler. They'll give him some yards again. He, they're not going to get a bunch of TFLs, but in terms of him ripping off, you know, six, seven, eight yards and putting him well ahead of the sticks, it'll happen a couple times because look, it's Austin Eckler. He's really good and he's really strong. But in terms of sort of hang your hat on, that's how we're going to build our offense and that's where we're going to get our success. After about drive two or three, like they're going to, they're going to boil back down to what you were talking about. We've got to get our guys free against Aaron Glenn's defensive backs playing basically like him as proxy on the field. That's where that comes from is Aaron Glenn was super aggressive as a DB. And he's like, guess what guys, guess what we're going to do. <laughs> we're going to beat the shit out of people. That's what we're going to do. Right. <laughs> um, so yeah, tough matchup for the chargers. I think it's winnable. Like I really do mm-hmm. think it's winnable because again, what they do really well, you know, with the pass rush and, and, you know, with, with Keenan, beating man coverage at like a really high percentage like and and Justin Herbert's playing great like what they do well works really well it just depends on if they can hit every single green light and stay in that lane the entire game if they can they win if Detroit is not only taking all these yak opportunities but also finishing in the red zone and Detroit's you know not letting Quentin Johnston have the breakout game that we've been waiting for forever even when they give him opportunities to like anytime they make the Chargers get out of the one lane they want to be in, it, it's it's tough for them. So I I think the Lions have a better shot of winning this one than the Chargers, but I wouldn't completely rule out the Chargers just overwhelming them with that NASCAR package and, and Justin Herbert being Justin Herbert. It's going to be a tough game, uh, a winnable game, but, but yeah, a tough game if I'm being realistic about it. 
Lions are healthy coming off the bye. The only worry I would have is them coming out flat. But, oh, right, Dan Campbell's their head coach. They're not coming out yeah. flat. Um, so they've got all their weapons right now. And, you know, I'd say that gives them a pretty significant advantage. Yes, the Chargers could win it, but I'm with you. It has to be. There is a very narrow envelope for that to happen. Uh, all right, third game, Texans-Bengals. You know, we talked at length about uh, the ascension of C.J. Stroud, which we already thought he was great, but then he became, like, star <laughs> status in the league, right, after last week. Um, there was an interesting chart that was uh, posted by Arjun Manan, um, who we, we love Arjun. He's a great analytics follow on Twitter. Go check him out. He does fantastic work. You know, used to used to do stuff for the Jets in their analytics department. Um and he posted this chart that was a percentage of a series of downs that has gone run, run, pass for each offense in 2023. And every fan base always complains about being run, run, pass. You know, you run on first down, you get three yards, you run on second down, you get five yards, and oh, it's third and five, time to pass. You know, and even when I was doing the Steelers uh, Matt Canada video, and I was like, uh, if I recall correctly, the Steelers were third or fourth in terms of. Uh, run play percentage on second and seven plus, you know, these long down and distance runs and how frustrating that was because it was super predictable. The Texans were one of the only teams that were in front of the Steelers. Like they ran on second and long all the time. And they very much had the training wheels on CJ Stroud in the first half of the season. And then the Tampa game happened and they completely took them off. What I'm very curious about for this game is if they're going to let C.J. Stroud do that again against a Bengals defense that showed they knew how to stop that style of play literally last week against Buffalo, you know, where they knew that that the Bills were not going to run the ball. They had like eight eight designed carries the entire game. Uh, and, and since he let them play that style, they wanted them to play that style. They called cover two on like 32% of first downs, like they didn't give a shit about stopping the run because they knew Buffalo wasn't going to run the ball anyway. Uh, and so I'm curious to see if Lou breaks out that style in this one. And also I'm curious to see if they let Stroud play that style in this one for the second game in a row against a defense that's probably better at stopping that style than, than Tampa is. Well, they've got a lot of practice. This is synergistic football 101. This is the Bengals defense. Since Burrow being back, we've talked a lot about Joe being back, and he's really been back for the last three weeks. Since then, opposing teams are under a lot more pressure from the Bengals' offense, and that, in turn, has flipped the script for the Bengals' defense. The Bengals have faced a league-low 41 rushing attempts in those three games. So it's not just Buffalo not running the ball. It's if Joe comes out and hangs a touchdown on you, and you go down and punt or kick a field goal, and Joe goes down and hangs another touchdown on you, you get the idea that it's going to be a long day and you're going to need to get yards in chunks. So no matter what the plan is for C.J. Stroud, if Joe dictates from the other side by hanging up points on the regular, they're going to have to say, well, <laughs> here you go, C.J. We're going to put the ball back in your hand. Let's go. We need our own chunks if we're going to win this or stay close. 
we need you to produce points. And that is not going to come from 3.2 or 3.6 yards of carry with good old Mr. Damian Pierce. They're going to need to put the ball in the air regardless. And so the Bengals are used to it. They've been seeing this for the last three weeks. Like teams are just giving up on the run because they've got to try and play catch up. And the Bengals are settling in. They're actually fairly mid-pack on most of their defensive statistics against the pass. I was kind of surprised by that. I expected them to be absolute killers in the top 10. Most of their defensive pass statistics, 16th, 18th, sometimes 20th. But it's a style that's working because they're playing opportunistic football. And again, they're ready for it. They've seen a bunch of this over the last three weeks. And they get turnovers and they get big negative plays and they're very good in situational football, even if the, you know, total stats don't look super sexy. Um, when it comes to mm-hmm. situational football, like I would, I would take Bengals defense over a lot of defenses in the league, uh, probably all of them except like three or four in terms of like, hey, we need we need one series out of you, you know to to stop here's like an elite young quarterback and nico collins and tank dell who are absolutely shredding everybody uh, and bobby slow dialing it up like we need one series from you to stop that quartet of madness there's very few defenses in the league that i would i would tap in front of cincy and it's like baltimore kansas city cleveland and like that's it you know and then it, and then it's like okay yeah then then lou anarumo like that's it um so it's a it's a tough matchup for Houston's offense because we literally just saw the Bengals sit back and play cover two all day and be really successful at it. You know, like uh, Cam Taylor Brick got that uh, awesome pick in cover two on Josh Allen, where Josh, for whatever reason, decided to throw the whole shot when he really shouldn't have thrown the whole shot. Uh, you know, we saw uh, Trey Hendrickson tee off. Like I don't, I don't think the Bengals are scared of, of that game plan, and for good reason. I'm just really, really curious to see if Houston tries to lean into it again because they think that Stroud can do it better than Allen, which sounds like a wild statement. But this year he kind of has done it better than Allen, so I don't know. I don't in, know. It's, it's in terms it's one of, of life's accuracy. Yeah, in terms of accuracy and ball placement, like what C.J. Stroud's doing right now is special, and it is better. Uh, as a whole over if we just take the last two games not the entire season because cj is a rookie and josh is clearly not like josh had some absolute dimes in that last game like beautiful Mm -hmm. beautiful ball placement cj had more (laughs) in his last game his ball is not throwing really bad picks against cover two like that's the thing it's it's not it's not just that you're getting the dimes it's that you're getting the dimes without the turnovers yeah and that's why i feel like Stroud might be able to run that particular type of game plan against Cincy better than Josh did as sacrilegious as that sounds, because I think you're going to get all the good, but not the, what the hell are you doing? Josh turnovers that we get twice a game, like literally twice a game. They're turning the ball over as an offense. hundred percent. And speaking of people running it extremely well, my favorite Joe Burrow is a cyborg stat for this week. Off-target completions in the last three weeks. Again, we talk very specifically about the Joe is back, Joe is healthy, right? It's the last three weeks. Off-target incompletions in the last three weeks. He's thrown three 
total. So he's not missing. Not not three a game. He's thrown one off-target completion in each game. And the Bengals' pass pro hasn't been perfect. Like It's not like he's just sitting back there in clean pockets all day. We've seen the escapability in him ducking under guys and, and improving as he always does. With all of that, one off-target incompletion per game. That's machine-like efficiency. It's it's really ridiculous. The explosive pass percentage, now explosive pass is 15-plus yards, fifth in the league over the same stretch at 16.3%. That's 21 out of 129. So we talked, you know, oh, yeah, the eye test is they're hitting the longer balls to chase. Like, stats back it up, and he, especially in the last game, he could tell him. He was just looking over at the sideline, his tongue out, just like, Yep, we're going to do this all day. And that's that's the old Joe. He did not have that in the beginning of the season because he couldn't move, couldn't set, couldn't put his cleats in the ground, couldn't throw deep. Now he is, mm-hmm, I'm back, folks. I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to pick right up where I left off at the end of last season when I was healthy. And that is an incredibly scary proposition to deal with for any defense, even a defense like the Texans, which has some good young stars who are starting to ascend. That's the thing is like Joe Joe had done that with an offensive line that was in the bottom third of the league in terms of pressure percentage given up, and he's going up against a Texans uh, pass rush that's top five in terms of pass rush win rate, and I still kind of think it doesn't matter. Like I know that Joe's going to be <laughs> under pressure all day. Like Jonathan Grenard is going to get there. Will Anderson is going to get there. Like Grenard has an elite pass rush win rate. He's got he's averaging like a sack a game over the last month. And he absolutely demolished Carolina, like almost single-handedly with those speed to power moves. Like he ran over Iggy Aquanu. I'm not kidding four times. And he's probably going to do the same thing this week. And I don't really think it matters because it, no matter how much pressure you get against Joe, if you don't get him on the ground, like the, the pass rush win rate against since he doesn't, doesn't really mean anything because <laughs> if you don't get him on the ground he's going to escape and then he's going to do his serial killer joe stuff and throw pinpoint passes on the run that seem completely impossible and that's why they're so frustrating to play against because they kind of defy math like mathematically they should be so much worse than they are with an offensive line that's playing like that but when you have joe burrow you're kind of fine like almost no matter what um Honestly, the only thing that might hold them back this week is is Jamar Chase's back. Like, we don't really know what's going on with that. Again, we're recording this in the middle of the day on a Wednesday, and, and Zach Taylor's come out the last two days and has said, like, guys, he's really hurting. You know, like, if he practices at all, he's barely going to be doing anything, you know. And, and when he first came down on that back in the Buffalo game, Chris Collinsworth immediately was like, He's going to hurt to get up in the morning. He might not even stand up in the morning because I've done that before and it hurts like a bitch. And yeah, he's hurting a lot. So, you know, Jamar Chase might not even practice the entire week leading up to this game. And, and who knows if he's going to play? Like he probably will, but who knows if he's going to play? And the one thing that I think could hold Cincy back is if, is if Jamar's back is in a state where they don't feel like they can throw him over the middle because they don't want to risk him getting absolutely nailed by a safety 
you know, trying mm-hmm. to make a tough catch over the middle. Like if Jamar is relegated to just outside the numbers duty to protect his back, that does significantly alter the makeup of of the Bengals offense. And while I still trust Joe to overall get it done, like we can't ignore what that fundamentally does to them if the deep post to Jamar is off the table, if the over routes and the digs and everything to Jamar is off the table where he normally gets those and takes off and gets 10 extra yards. Like it's a big component of what they do. So, mm-hmm. you know, keep an eye on that. By the time this podcast comes out, we'll probably have more clarity on on what Jamar's back looks like, but it, it could be a big deal here. It's, it's significant. It's a difficult injury for anybody, but especially for a wide receiver. It's a lot of torque in that area where your hips meet your spine and there's no padding. And he came down on it dead flat from a pretty good height. And I don't care what the field's made out of. That does not feel good. There's no flex there. There's no compression or bend. Like it's literally just smack. All the impact goes directly into that area. We saw him, you know, start to stiffen up pretty much immediately. They were putting a heating pack on it on the sidelines, trying to keep him loose. He wasn't walking particularly well. Yeah, by the time that that settled in and he had 24 hours on that one, it'd be rough. Good news is T. Higgins has started to come back to being T. Higgins. He certainly wasn't in the beginning of the beginning of the season. Tight ends have figured in the game plan again for the first time all year for the Bengals. So there's other options, but. Yeah, we're going to be honest. It's not the same without Jamar out there, no matter if Joe is threading the needle to all the other options, as good as they are. That one draws a lot of coverage and dictates a lot of space for that offense, like creates a lot of space for that offense. If it's not there, it will be different. Overall, um, again, I say this as a Texans fan. I do think the Bengals uh, are, are going to win this one but it's sneaky. It's yeah. absolutely sneaky. Like CJ Stroud is, is playing at a top of the AFC level right now. Mm-hmm. Like absolutely is playing at the top, top level of, of all AFC quarterbacks right now. Um, and I don't, I don't really think that's a controversial statement. And that really, that's really great to say, you know, that the Texans <laughs> have a quarterback where everybody is universally like, that dude could fucking play, you know? So that that's awesome. That's That feels great to say. Um, and that's why this game is, I think, you know, maybe sneakier than than we thought it was going to be back in August. Uh, again, I still think the Bengals are going to win it, but I wouldn't be shocked if the Texans come out and, and you know, give them a better game than Buffalo did. It looks like it's going to be a duel, and that's great for fans. Again, um, non-aligned fans who don't have any skin in the game, this is this is going to be an enjoyable football game because it's two teams that are playing really well right now, and we'll just get to see who plays better on a given day. But we should be treated to some pretty high-level quarterback play no matter who's on the field, which is always a good time. Really looking forward to it. Um, we're going to try to keep this show under two hours so we won't spend all day talking about uh, my beloved Texans. And we're going to go to our fourth game on the docket, Commander Seahawks, which you will be at this weekend in Seattle. Uh, there's a huge contingent, uh, a contingent of, of you know people from the Seahawkers uh, group that are going to the game. You're going to be joining them. Um, I have to imagine it's going to be loud and, and rocking and you know the 12s are going to be Excited to have one of their last good weather home games of the year. At least I think it's going to be good weather. I checked the weather a couple days ago and it seemed like it was going to be fine, but 
Yeah, we'll I see. care a little bit less because the seats we got are undercover. So, you know, oh, it might be oh, terrible. Look at you, Mister Moneybags. Come on. Uh, now. Well, let's be fair. They're undercover, but you also need oxygen to get to them. Oh, it's one of the ones where like the the super. Uh, yep. The so that's the thing. If you've never been to a game in Seattle. When you get to the third deck, you kind of need like crampons to get to the top mm-hmm. seats because the stairs are so freaking steep. Like it's it's kind of nerve wracking. It's steep up there. It's you you can it's lose dangerous. it, and uh, you know it it can be. But uh, so we will be undercover, which is nice because November in in the Pacific Northwest is just that it's wet, and uh, you know so we're not going to be bothered by that. But it is it's also part of the reason that stadium is as loud as it is because the you know. The, the two side, you know, side line seating sections are, are quite tall. They go fairly vertical. And that keeps a lot of that noise in the stadium. I'm looking forward to it because the matchup between these two teams is going to be really fun. If you haven't been paying attention to the commanders and you kind of missed the heater that they're on over the last month, really three weeks, look, you're forgiven. It's commanders football. Nobody's, everybody's been conditioned to look away from commanders football for a long time. You should turn your eyes back to it. Don't sleep on them. They are first in passing attempts with 143, first in completions with 91, first in passing yards gained over the last three weeks, 977, 460 of those are yak. That's third in the league over the span. And TDs, they are tied for sixth. This is a team that is finding its way under Sam Howell, and it's not like his offensive line suddenly got better. Like that protection is suddenly great. It's still awful, but he's getting better at dealing with it and dealing within it. And right now he's putting on a show. This is going to be a challenge. I, again, like you said about the last game, I, I could see the team winning this. I would lean towards the Seahawks. They're at home. I believe they're a better team overall, but Sam Howell, regardless of what happens with the pass rush, with all that coverage that Seattle can put up in the secondary, he's going to throw it. Like he's got a gun and he is going to challenge you straight up. Well, he's going to throw it because Eric Bieniemy, uh, even as a former running back, just doesn't like running the ball. Like, and maybe it's a it's a product of he knows that their offensive line isn't very good, so he's like, ah, what's the point? Um, but this team straight up refuses to run. Uh, they're kind of like a slightly, not by much, but a slightly worse version of the bills in terms of being seventh highest in terms of successful play percentage on early downs, but the absolute lowest run play percentage in the league. Again, I want you to listen to that last sentence. They run the ball on early downs less than Buffalo. You know how hard that is to do real hard. straight up throw, <laughs> throw, 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 throw. So yeah, of course Sam Howell is going to have like the most yards because they don't fucking run. Uh, but but the fact that defenses know they're not going to run and he's still that successful really does say a lot. Uh, and like you said, it's not like the past protections gotten any better. Um, no. It's really it's really just about, uh, you know, him getting it out quickly. And he's cut his sack percentage like like literally in half or pretty much in half uh, over the last three weeks. If you're looking at weeks one through six, he took 6.3 sacks per game, which sounds absurd, and it was. It was on and pace it is. to literally <laughs> break the league record. Um, but over the last three weeks, because he's had the seventh fastest time to throw in these last three games, he's cut it down to about 3.3 sacks per game, which is a little bit 
more i mean it's not great because they still can't pass protect but it's not like oh my god he's gonna die by christmas you know <laughs> it it so might be survivable whereas what was happening before was not you just as a quarterback you can't take that much punishment but again that offensive line isn't magically going to get better between last week and this week and seattle's pass rushers are going to hit howl not just because the protection is bad but because seattle's rush game has really stepped up this year so commander's pass pro that's poo we already know that seattle generates pressure when they get home at a really good rate overall pressures generated 162 that's 20th in the league but again, if you go back to when they're actually contacting the quarterback, knockdowns, uh, you know, hits and sacks, they're 50, they have 59 of those. That's 11th in the league. So they go from 20th in pressures to 11th when you're talking about, yeah, we make contact. They're not going to have, uh, they're going to have some turnstiles in their way, speed bumps, whatever you want to call them. But Clint Hurt has gotten league attention. I mentioned it way back in week two. I was like, man, Clint Hurts dialing up some really interesting blitzes and people are going to start paying attention. And then on top of that, BT Jordan. We talked about BT Jordan's addition and how important it was way back in the summer preview series. And he's having an impact. Seattle's pass rush has not looked this angry and effective in a long time. So it could be a very long day for Sam. We're going to get to see him run for his life. We're going to get to see him try and be as evasive as he possibly can. He's going to throw up some, you know, absolute bombs on the run. I'm expecting an exciting game in terms of, you know, who comes out on top. Boy, unless the enemy has some kind of balance, whether that comes from a little bit more in the run game or maybe some adjustments in the pass pro, something. Uh, Sam's in for a long day because this Seattle, this Seattle front can rush. If there was ever a week for the Commanders to run the ball, it's going to be this week because uh, the Seahawks' run defense is a lot less formidable than, in my opinion, their pass defense. And yes, I know Baltimore kind of skewed the stats a little bit, but you know, a little bit. <laughs> Seattle's twenty uh, three hundred yards will do that. But uh, Seattle's the twenty first ranked run defense right now. But it's not like they were tenth before. You know, they were kind of average at best in terms of run defense because they sit back there and they they play quarters and they play quarter quarter half and the safeties are 12 yards deep and and they're going to play coverage and rush the passer and then whatever whatever you want to get on the ground they're probably going to give to you right it's a big reason why they lost to baltimore they couldn't stop the run um so if there was ever a time for the commanders to lean into like the brian robinson experience it's this week again i don't have any faith in them doing that but like if if you don't run now you're just never going to run so we'll see we'll see uh in terms of the Seahawks offense on the other side of the ball situationally they're not good uh if you look at red zone offense they are 21st in terms of touchdown scoring percentage if you look at third down they are 30th and yes I understand Baltimore skewed that a little bit cuz they went like 1 for 13 on third down against Baltimore but they weren't great before then so you know, I look at the Seahawks offense and I know that they can get explosive plays. You know, you see the 50 yarder to DK and you're like, awesome. They're they're on the move. They're going to make this work. <laughs> then they get to the red zone. And they stall out. So it's it's a major problem for them. I would say pass protection is kind of the root of all evil here, because especially on third down, uh, they're the fourth worst offensive line in terms of pressure allowed. 
Also, fun fact, uh, they were the worst before the Ravens game, so they actually got better while getting throttled <laughs> by the Ravens, but they're still the fourth worst in the league. I would say the one saving grace is that Washington traded away Montez and Chase Young, who absolutely would have teed off on them in this game, and now it's only going to be John Allen teeing off on them and Deron Payne, or Darren Payne teeing off on them. So, you know, it could be worse, but, yeah, pass protection is is just killing them this year in terms of uh, their their ability to win in situational football. When you're talking about it could be worse to lead off a segment, it's a bad it's a bad start. The weird thing is way back up at the beginning of this pod, we talked about, you know, both the Jaguars and the Niners, like being good in fits and spurts. And yes, they're good teams. They've ripped off long win streaks, but oh, they could be better. And Seattle even way down at the bottom of the table, is the same way. You talk about those plays that you see, and the numbers play it out. Efficiency-wise, they're pretty good. Overall, they're not. So they're 23rd overall in rushing yards, but in terms of explosive run plays, they jump up to 10th. So you do see these flashes. You know there's there's these hits of competence where you're like, yeah, all right, like you said, they're on the move. They're going to string a drive together. And then they don't. Weirdly... <laughs> It holds true for passing. So they're 23rd in passing yards, just like they're 23rd in rush yards, but they're eighth in explosive plays for the pass, 14.6%. So they they can do it. We've seen it. We have evidence, especially between the 20s, that this offense is capable of gashing teams on the ground through the air. They do it like at a fairly efficient rate, but they don't situationally, which is the point you were stressing, they don't string it together. They're not great in the red zone. And as a result, you kind of come away going, ah, we, we had it. Like you were right there, but you didn't win the game or you didn't win the quarter or anything else. And that's why the Seahawks record is what it is and isn't slightly better. They are specifically a top five offense in the NFL when only looking at first down outside of the red zone. Every other situation <laughs> in the sport, you know, second and oh, 10. Man. Oh, that's that's bad idea. Third third in anything they're bad once they're inside the 20 they're bad but boy those first downs from like the 45 are just mint like they're great there you know it's like the, the four <laughs> is, times they get to do it <laughs> is there more faint praise anywhere in the league <laughs> oh man i've got to cherry pick this one statistic because it's golden and they look great in terms of the commander's defense with with a lot of the talent, especially defensive line talent, you just talked about the fact they traded away two of the stars there, so there's significantly less going into this game. But as weird as it sounds, Seattle might have to lean into the run in this game because the commander's run D is not great. It's below average. Uh, rush yards per attempt, 4.4. That's 23rd in the league. Rushing yards before contact per attempt, 1.4. That's 24th in the league. Total rush yards allowed, over 1,000. It's 22nd in the league. Like, they're not great against the run. Strangely enough, and this might not surprise you, especially with your draft takes, the commander's pass defense has been pretty lousy too, even with all that pass rush. Passing yards per attempt allowed is 27th. Pass yards after the catch per completion, 25th. And pass yards total allowed is 28th. So they're really... Not good at any of it. I want to be fair here. And I know a lot of people are going to be like, oh, Brett's going to go in on Emmanuel Forbes again, and he's going to grandstand you, about you that pick. <laughs> I'm going to go the opposite direction. Uh-oh. Because we are, we are fair 
on this podcast, right? And I want to amplify the successes of Emmanuel Forbes as much as we've amplified the early season struggles. Oh, I love he the we his, part there. Well, <laughs> it's a group effort here, EJ. That's right. <laughs> Always in tandem. Hey, you you were shocked by the pick too, man. Okay, I was shocked, uh, but I didn't hate it. Hatred is different. <laughs> I do want to acknowledge, though, and I, I want to say it loud for the people in the back, he is coming off his best game as a pro. And, like, by far his best game as a pro. Uh, he was phenomenal against New England. You know, he had seven targets and only allowed two catches for 12 yards and had four forced incompletions. He was fantastic. And that's the first time I've seen him Sean's uh, some reps in the preseason, but the first time I've seen him look like a first round corner. And so I want to, again, I want to say it loud that Emmanuel Forbes, you had a whale of a game and that's all commanders fans want to see because it, in the first half of the year, they didn't see anything like that. And that's all Commanders fans want to see. And honestly, that's all I want to see. Like, I'm not rooting for the kid to fail. Like, I want to be no. wrong, right? Um, I mean, I don't want to be wrong because then people people won't listen to the show. But, like, I'm okay being wrong <laughs> if it means that he's successful, right? Sure. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, and so I want, to, I want to give him his props for that. He looked really, really fantastic. And I genuinely hope that he can keep it up because I, like, I don't think he's a bad dude. I think he's a good dude. And I, I want him, uh, I want him to have a good career. I want him to, you know, make me eat crow. As long as he keeps playing like that, he will. Um, I will say the Seahawks receiving core is a hell of a lot different than the Patriots receiving core. So he's going to have a tougher task. He's going up against another receiver in DK Metcalf that's going to have 50 pounds on him, like AJ Brown did. So that's kind of another obstacle is can he handle a big body X receiver? Hasn't been able to do that yet this year. Um, but if he can do that, if he can string together two solid games in a row, that is going to be massive, I think, for his uh, his development as a player because it will prove to him that he belongs and that he can do it and that, you know, maybe A.J. Brown is just A.J. Brown, right? And, and we can live with him killing us as long as we play well in the other 15 games of the year. Yeah, the commanders are going to need him to in terms of us rooting for somebody's failure. No, we're not rooting for anybody's failure. And the commanders need him. He is a first round pick. They need him to play well in the secondary. They need him to continue to grow uh, in his skills and, you know, in situations he's seen and how he handles them. Uh, a lot of rookies talk about approach as a pro. Like, I, I didn't realize that every week was going to be like this. And I learned how to prepare and come in. And, you know, we see a lot of big jumps a lot of times from first year to the second year. We hope we see that with Manuel Forbes. He's got a lot of skills. He was very successful corner in the SEC. He was, you know, as ready as people get. But this is the NFL. He is learning. He is progressing. It's it's certainly not time to pull the plug. In fact, the light looks a little brighter than it has for the rest of the season. So there you go. Should be a fun game. Uh, hope you enjoy climbing the mountain to get up to your <laughs> I think seats. I'm going to like get two beers and climb up there and just sit. Like, I, I don't think I want to take a lot of trips down. Are you taking the train in, by the way? Oh, for sure. 100%. Why would I? For people that haven't been to a game in Seattle, it's like the easiest stadium to get in and out of by far. Like, it's so easy. The, the fact that every other NFL stadium doesn't have a train station attached to it 
uh, just enrages me because I'm like, <laughs> Seattle figured it out. We, we've spoiled you, and that's a good thing. All right, last game, Browns-Ravens. Perhaps the marquee game of the week in terms of, uh, you know, potential impact on on playoff seeding and everything like that. Because uh, if the playoffs started today, every single AFC North team would be in. Like, I don't, I don't know if people realize that. Like, the entire AFC uh-huh. North is above 500. <laughs> like it's, we it's we say it every division. year. AFC yeah. North is a murder division, and it always has been. And they've been murdering everybody else this year. Including murdering each other. I mean, the last two times, uh, or the last time these two teams played, uh, the Ravens murdered the Browns. No pun intended. Um, and that game was different because DTR started it. Deshaun Watson's going to be starting this one. And Deshaun is coming off one of his better games as as the Browns quarterback. And I have to assume he's not going to throw three picks uh, like DTR did when he got thrown in last minute with no real time to prep for arguably the best defense in the league. Like that wasn't really fair to the kid. Uh, and and it put the Browns defense in, in a, a pretty rough situation to, to handle Lamar Jackson of all quarterbacks. Right. So Browns got ran over in that one because of of that whole situation uh, and, and all the turnovers and everything like that. Um, I have to imagine this game's going to go a little bit differently because again, Deshaun Watson versus DTR, but it's not like Deshaun's played super well in his own right. Like again, he's coming off uh, one of his better games as the Browns quarterback against a, a Cardinals defense. that's not very good. But I do think it's kind of, um, if I was the Browns, I'd be kind of worried if I'm looking at my quarterback who, you know, threw for like 220 yards and a couple touchdowns and at a 7.1 yards per attempt. And we're like, that's what we've been waiting for. And it's like, that's what you've been waiting for for a year and a half? Like that game? I don't know. Like it's, it's one, I think we can kind of play both sides here and say like he played better against Arizona, but also at the same time, like he might not be a top 10 quarterback in his own conference. And it's going to be hard to win this game if you don't have a top 10 quarterback in your own conference against one of the three best defenses in the league. It's You said earlier we're fair, and it's completely fair to say he played better against Arizona really than he has all year. It's also completely fair to say Arizona and the Ravens might be the two furthest teams apart in the league in terms of competence. Yep. So it's going to be a completely different experience. And at some point, we need to start talking about Deshaun Watson trade as one of the worst moves in football history and throw the draft picks and the money out the window, even though both of those categories are hugely consequential in this move. Let's just look at his average stats from his past five starts. 55% completion, 180 yards a game, 1.2 TDs, 0.6 interceptions, 2.6 2.6 sacks and a QBR of 40. Now that's for people that say I'm cherry picking good or bad. It's, it's not. It's literally his last five starts averaged out. If those are the stats of your quarterback, regardless of the money you have tied up in him, I don't think in any way staring down a decent quarterback class in the next draft, you're going, oh yeah, we're set. We're totally good. We're going to win with that. Even if you have an all world defense, which the Browns do this year. You need to be able to play complementary football between the offense and the defense. And without an upgraded quarterback, now that can be Deshaun playing much better than he has. 
But again, he hasn't demonstrated that so far. We need to see it. He needs to prove it. Or moving in another direction, which is going to be incredibly hard because of the money situation. The Browns are hamstrung right now because their quarterback, starting quarterback, is just not playing very good football. Their defense is playing elite football, and that's going to catch up to you in the playoffs. Like you're going to go one and done, or maybe a win and then lose badly because you're going to you're going to run into a defense that can stop you, like they are this week. This is a primer, and they that other team also might have an offense that works pretty good like they do this week. Again, this is a primer, and we're going to see what happens. It's a much different task this week. Um, and, you know, he had some really, really nice uh, deep passes against against Arizona. But again, Arizona, in terms of passes 20-plus yards down the field, allow the second highest rate of completion on those. Like, it, they A, they don't win contested passes down the field. B, their pass rush isn't really good. Uh, they don't have a lot of speed in the secondary outside, like especially outside. Like they're one of the easiest teams to complete deep balls against. And now he's going against arguably the hardest team to complete deep balls against. They allow the fourth lowest completion percentage on targets of 20 plus yards down the field. And oh, by the way, they might be the best overall pass rush in football. So you're not even going to get time to throw down the field anyway. Like, this is going to be a, an entirely different task for Deshaun Watson, who's going to be missing Jed Wills, who got injured. He's going to be out for like six weeks, mm-hmm. is what they said. So you're going into it down your left tackle. You're going against an elite defense. Like, the only real shot I think they have is can they string together a 10 plus play drive of just quick pass, quick pass, quick pass, because like they're not going to give you anything deep and you for damn sure can't hold it more than two and a half seconds anyway. But can you do that <laughs> 10, 11, 12 times in a row? And can Jerome Ford, you know, keep you on schedule with a four and five yard run against a, a phenomenal front seven? Like it's so, so hard to do that against Baltimore, let alone when you're trying to keep up with a dominant run game. You're trying to keep up with an MVP caliber quarterback. You're trying to keep up with Todd Monken, who's establishing himself as a very, very good offensive coordinator in the NFL. I absolutely love the Browns defense. I think they're probably the best in the league. But offensively speaking, (laughs) well, I would say so. I would I mean, I... I know it's at least top three. Let's just say top three, right? Easily top three. Easily. Probably top two. But but they can't do it by themselves. They couldn't do it last time by themselves because the offense couldn't do dick against the Ravens, right? And I worry, even if Deshaun doesn't throw three picks like DTR did, I worry that they're not going to be able to move the ball and it's going to be a similar result. Because I think even if we don't say the Browns are the best defense in the league, and we just say they're top three. They're going against another top three defense in Baltimore that also has a way better offense backing them up. And so it feels like a halfway elite team versus an all-the-way elite team, and those types of games usually don't end up going super well. Ravens defense has allowed nine touchdowns this year. We're going into week 10 
folks. That's the best in the league by far. The Jets, who everybody is lauding as an impressive defense, and they are. They're extremely good, is second with 13. The TD drive percentage allowed by the Ravens is absurd. It's 8.6. That is 9 out of 105 drives have ended up in a touchdown for their opponents. Nine. Mm-hmm. Like, again, the Jets are the second best, and they're 30% higher. It's 13.1%, 13 of 99, which is awesome, but the Ravens are literally gapping them. And, again, the blueprint in previous years to beat the Ravens was you always had to beat their defense. Their defense was good. Not this good, but it was good. And if you stopped the run, you had a pretty good chance to hold them down passing-wise. Well, everybody thought the rushing offense was going to drop off under Todd Monken and the passing yards were going to equalize. They thought there's only so many points to go around in the offense, so we're going to see this leveling. Well, over the last three weeks, Ravens have 580 rushing yards. It's number one in the league with a bullet, so eh, they're not sloughing off with the rush. The next closest team over the same stretch, Chicago, with 463. It's 117 yards less over three weeks. And during that same time frame, about that pass offense dropping off, they've racked up the 10th most passing yards in the league at 749. So the switch from Greg Roman's dated passing game and very effective run game has worked like resoundingly well. Not only did you just get passing and drop rushing, your rushing is still awesome and your passing is better than it has been in years Oh, and by the way, you're working with a defense that's given up one touchdown a week. Yeah. The Ravens are Super Bowl like front runners at this point, and it is because of their balance. It is because the changes that Harbaugh made both on the offense and two years ago bringing in Mike McDonald on a defense, like everything's coming up roses for them. It matches very well with the talent. And right now, they are not the card you want to draw on any given week. They are a tough, tough out. The one thing that I think the Browns could look to as their trump card in this one is is Miles Garrett. Um, and kind of you know flipping over the other side of that that matchup, the Browns defense. I the reason why I think for me um, I would. If I had to take any of the top three defenses, and we talked about this in the in the recap show, um, you know, uh, in terms of of like who's the most like just diabolical play caller, it's probably Steve Spagnolo. Like who has the best secondary? Who, you know, who's who's got the best pass rush? For me, the reason why I think I I lean Cleveland overall is because they have the best secondary, and I don't think that's a debate. The Ravens have an, an amazing secondary in their own right. The Browns are flat out ridiculous, like flat out ridiculous on the back end. They match up against anybody. They can run anything. You know, they sat there against the 49ers and, you know, they played cover one like the entire day and didn't care against Kyle Shanahan. Like, you don't think Kyle Shanahan has a bunch of man beaters in his playbook? He does. I have his playbook. I looked at it. They're all over. And it didn't matter. They were so good that it's like, oh, you're going to run mesh? Okay. Like, we got you. Oh, you're, you're going to run spear? Okay. We got you. 
Like every every single man beater couldn't beat their man coverage. And when you have a secondary that's so good that it doesn't matter what you run, you can stay in cover one all day. Like that's that is such an insane advantage that yep. like the only other time you really see that is like Ohio State against Rutgers, you know, where they just don't give a shit. They're just gonna out talent you. <laughs> And so that's why I kind of like lean Cleveland in that conversation. But the trump card is ultimately Miles Garrett because we know that the Browns are probably going to play a lot of man coverage with zone help over the middle to take away Mark Andrews. He's the he's the safety blanket. He's the chain mover. He's all that. Take away the middle of the field from Lamar and then force him to work deep outside the numbers in those one-on-ones against the best corners in the league, right? The only real answer in terms of getting chunk plays through the air that I think Baltimore might have is, hey, we're going to run go routes down the sideline, and if we can't get to our landmarks or if they're playing over the top of us, we're going to snap it off and convert those to a comeback. Baltimore does that quite often, right? Because they rely on Lamar having the escapability and the mobility to buy time for those routes Mm -hmm. to convert to a comeback so that he can you know, either hit him from the pocket or be on the move and, and hit him uh, from the move. The reason why I think Miles Garrett's the trump card is if Miles can get there and get Lamar on the ground before those routes can convert and kind of use their top-down leverage against them to then come back to the ball and get easy first downs, if Miles can get there first, then what do the Ravens do? Because they're taking away the middle of the field. You know, they've, they've got... The nickel that can match up with Zay. They've got the outside speed that can match up with Odell. What do you do? So, like, it, this is one of those games that could very easily be like six to three, and I wouldn't <laughs> bat an eye, but it really yep. does come down to can Miles win? I wouldn't bet against it. I wouldn't either, but if you've got Justin Tucker as your kicker and the Browns offense is equally troubled to score points. The six might be the Ravens and the three might be the Browns and the end result is the same. Miles is playing exceptionally good football. He has been all year and he's always going to be a factor. You talked about how good the Browns secondary is behind that too. Um, Allowed the lowest explosive pass plays in the league, just 29 all year. Like Mm -hmm. again, we're in week 10. It's 2.9 plays of 15 yards or more through the air per game. That's that's just not a lot. So both they left defenses 58 are yards on 48 plays last week. Like it's, who does that? <laughs> Nobody. And these two defenses, the fact that they're not only in the same conference, but in the same division is just like, that's just, you know, God's big joke. Like, yeah, we're going to give you like an extreme strength. But guess what? Your neighbor has it, too. So you two just fight it out. Um, it's going to be a great game. I, I don't think Brown's offense versus Ravens defense is going to be that fun to watch. I think the flip side is going to be extremely fun to watch and, and very evenly matched. Yeah, I lean Baltimore there just because I think they're the more complete team. And anytime you get uh, elite defense versus elite defense, it really comes down to, honestly, who's got the better quarterback who could just like make a play. And I think it's safe to say, Baltimore has that um and the so better I lead them in this game but not by a lot and the better kicker right right um again it's yeah. it's close but to me Baltimore's the best team in the league and until they lose a bunch of games uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep believing that 
Uh, all right, let's get to parting glass. Last segment here. Quick little notes at the end that we didn't get to or couldn't fit in or just didn't have a reason to mention until now. Uh, just a little parting thought for us. Mine this week, because we have not talked about the Jets that much. And nope. that's, that's our fault. I get it. Um, especially for a team that's like kind of in the playoff mix. I mean, sort of. Like they are, but they aren't, you know. Sure. But like they're not, sort of. they're not dead. So in the absence of talking about the Jets, I at least want to talk about a Jet, and that's Bryce Huff. He's been one of the very best pass rushers in the entire league this year. He's got 44 pressures, despite not even being a full-time player for them. He is the seventh highest pass rush win rate out of all edge rushers at 22%, which is crazy high. Uh, He is, again, not a full-time player, but still one of the more productive guys. And he's 25 years old and in the last year of his deal. So if you didn't know Bryce Huff, you should get to know Bryce Huff because he's about to make a lot of money, like a lot, a lot of money this coming off season. whether it's with the Jets or somebody else. I have no idea uh, who they very easily could have traded him for the exact same price that Washington got for Montez Sweat, uh, which is a second round pick. And to be honest, they might have got even more for him because I think Huff's been an even better player than Sweat this year. Not by much because Sweat's been good, but like Huff has been that dude. Um, and it's possible that, that they franchise tag him and try to run it back with one more year of Aaron. It's possible they tag and trade. Like, I don't think that they're just going to outright let him walk because they're a third round comp pick is not his true value. Like he's, he's worth a lot more than that. So I don't think they're going to outright let him walk, but I am curious to see a, how much he gets paid this off season and B who's going to pay him because I bet it's going to be north of what Montez Sweat Montez Sweat got, and um, it's it's probably going to be a, a pretty significant amount guaranteed. I've got receipts on this one. Brad Spielberger, our buddy over at PFF, will back me up. We were sort of simultaneously in chorus banging the table for Bryce Huff in the preseason. It was the pass rusher we wanted the Bears to trade for. The Bears asked the Jets. Specifically, Salah, he went, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, yeah. we're not. We, we might give you Carl Lawson, but you can't have Huff. And this is why he knew what was coming. And the price would have been lower. Again, last year of your deal, you would have been able to re-sign him at that point for less money uh, than you just paid for Montez Sweat and gotten, uh, I would say, a better pass rusher. Not as consistent player against the run. Montez Sweat's really good against the run. But in terms of a pure pass rusher, Huff is better. Uh, he would have been cheaper. He's not going to be now because uh, everybody knows now, but Sala knew then. So credit to him. My parting glass, I promise at the top of the show, we're going to come full circle. We're going to talk about the Niners. The Niners are broken. Somebody needs to unplug them and plug them back in. First three <laughs> weeks of the season, San Francisco scored 30, 30, and 30 for the first three weeks to start off that dominant five-win stretch. In the last three weeks, the Niners have scored 17, 17, and you guessed it, 17 to fall to five and three. <laughs> the Matrix is glitching. Like Kyle Shanahan needs to take out the cartridge and blow on it because something, that's just weird synchronicity to have three exact scores to start off your dominant win streak three weeks in a row and then have the three exact scores to, you know, bring your losing total to five and three. 
just super odd. Can't remember a team doing that before. Like I said, I have faith in the Niners. I do believe they'll write the ship. I do believe they'll get into the playoff picture, especially in the NFC. But that's that's some weird business. It's like uh, BC and AD. You know, it's it's uh, before <laughs> Trent injury, after Trent injury. Like that's that's oh, how yeah. I equate it. Who knew that losing bit. your first ballot Hall of Fame left tackle could be so important in a pass-heavy NFL? <laughs> <laughs> I did. We did. Yeah. Oh. All right. Fun show today. Uh, really, really good slate of games on this week. Uh, I know the, the primetime schedule got, got a lot of flack because people are tired of watching the Jets in primetime. But if you just pay attention to, to the early slate and the afternoon slate, and then just only watch Sunday Night Football to see what Aiden O'Connell does. Like, there's still a lot of entertainment to be had uh, in the NFL this week. Uh, I, I still think it's a pretty good group of games. Um, anyway, hope you guys enjoyed the show. We'll be back Monday recapping everything that happens uh, this weekend, everything that we got wrong, which I'm sure will be a lot, and everything that we got right, which I'm sure won't be. Uh, either way, we will talk about all of it on Monday. Thank you all for watching. We'll see you in a few days. Until then, later. Take care. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.